When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm standing on the harbour lounge, Tarsa. Quiet street, bland, low-rise flats in the middle of what used to be one of Berlin's Jewish districts. A chilly dusk is falling, and a nearby church bell has just been tolling for the six o'clock mass. I've walked past this street many times without giving it a second glance. The pavements in this neighborhood glitter with little brass squares, each laid in memory of a Jewish person driven out or murdered by the Nazi dictatorship. Across the road from me, there's a memorial to Albert Einstein, who lived here until Hitler came to power. But I didn't come here for Einstein. I'm here because of a man called Hans Josef Maria Globke. Hans Globke wasn't a Hitler or a Goering or a Goebbels. His name barely figures as a footnote in most histories of the Nazi era, but he did have a hand in every one of those brass squares among the paving stones. And as I stand on the site where he used to live, what bothers me is this. Over more than a decade of Nazi rule, Globka's Jewish neighbors were forced out of their homes. But early each morning, Globka would kiss his wife goodbye and head off to his post at the helm of the pitiless Reich interior ministry. And I wonder just what was going through his mind. I'm Oliver Moody, and I'm the Berlin correspondent for The Times. You're listening to The Spider in the Web, the Hans Globke story, a two-part podcast for stories of our times. Today, part one. Who was Hans Globke? This is a story about the Nazi regime that you've never heard before. It's about one of the forgotten Machiavellis of the 20th century, the man who helped to lay the legal basis for the Holocaust and then came back to build the foundations of modern Germany. For more than 70 years, much of this story has been locked away in classified sections of government archives. But recently, 
Those archives around the country have begun to open up, revealing their secrets. Secrets that may make Germans question the foundations of their republic. Only now is it possible to comprehensively reconstruct how Hans Glubke shaped some of the most tumultuous events of the past century, from the Nuremberg race laws to the course of the Cold War. It's a history of complicity and bitter moral compromises in the name of survival and of a country yet to fully get to grips with a past that scars it. Globke's story is, in a sense, the story of modern Germany. We'll begin at the end of the 19th century when Hans Globke was born. He was born in Düsseldorf in 1898. His father was a textile merchandiser and his mother was a housewife. They were wealthy. They were middle class. That's the voice of Nadine Freund, an academic from the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich. She spent years looking into Globke. When I was a schoolgirl, about 16, my history teacher um, spoke about Hans Maria Globke. One of the reasons I never forgot his name again is he has this female second forename. And uh, today I know it's not uncommon under Catholics to give this female name to their boys as a second forename. We can say that Hans Globke's name is Hans Maria, gives us a hint that his parents were very religious people. It was a time of unprecedented prosperity when Germany commanded an empire that stretched from Namibia on the west coast of Africa to Samoa in the South Pacific. And Kaiser Wilhelm II was at the height of his powers. Noch nie war Deutschland überwunden, wenn es einig war. When Glocke was a young child, his father Josef, a staunch Roman Catholic, bought a draper's shop in the medieval city of Aachen. The family faith mattered. Only a few decades earlier, the German state had fought a bitter culture war against its Catholics, and the divisions still rankled. Within a few years, the Globke's middle-class idyll was broken. In 1914, when Globke was just 15 years old, the First World War broke out. When he was 18, only one day after he left school, he became a soldier. He was only a common soldier, a field artillerist. And he just couldn't have had much knowledge of what to do to defend his own life. What did he do during the war when he was sent to fight? He was involved in several fights on the Western Front in France. And that he was wounded then and passed some time in a sick bay before he could return to his home at the end of the war. It's very hard to imagine that he wasn't anxious because he was so young, frightened and disgusted when he saw and smelled all those dead bodies. After the war, he returned to Germany to find Belgian soldiers billeted in the family home in Aachen. Coming so soon after his ordeal on the Western Front, this had a profound effect on the young man. In my impression, his early life had a strong impact on his character. He's been raised under Catholics, he became a soldier very early, he fought for his life, 
experienced that Germany lost the war nevertheless and that his home region was occupied by strangers. There's something you should know about Hans Globke. When he was 22, his father died, plunging the family into dire financial straits. For his family, who was wealthy before the war, but suffered from inflation after the war and lost nearly everything they had, that the male bread earner died. This made it even harder for his family. So Globke had to beg for a scholarship when he started his practical training. Once, after getting on the wrong side of the Allied occupation, Globke opted to spend a brief spell in prison because he couldn't pay the small fine. During the 1920s, Germany was staggering through the wild years of the Weimar Republic, a time when far-right militias assassinated their opponents in broad daylight, when police machine-gunned down communist protesters in the streets of Berlin, when young people in the big cities would lose themselves in the heady world of drugs, jazz music, and sexual experimentation. It was in this Berlin that the 31-year-old Globke, a reserved Catholic in a pair of rimless glasses, arrived in 1929. Some Catholics in the 1920s said Berlin was run by the devil because it was full of sins. It must have been very interesting for a young man as Globke was to work and to live in such a big city with all these possibilities to go out in the evenings, to meet very different kind of people, maybe to go to cabaret. From everything we know about Globke, we can assume he probably didn't. In Berlin, after taking a doctorate in law at the elite universities of Bonn and Cologne, Globke joined the Prussian Interior Ministry. And then, in late 1932, Weeks before the Nazis came to power, Globke, by now a senior civil servant, wrote a law that would have slotted impeccably into the annals of the Third Reich. The law banned Jews from concealing their identity by adopting non-Jewish names. The phrasing of this part in particular stands out to me for its cold bureaucratic indifference to people's lives. The view that it is dishonorable for a person of Jewish origin to carry a Jewish name cannot be endorsed. Therefore, any attempts by Jewish persons to conceal their Jewish parentage by dropping or altering their Jewish name cannot be supported. So even before the Nazis came to power, Hans Globke had written his first piece of anti-Semitic legislation. He explicitly mandated that Germans of Jewish descent should not be able to protect themselves from violent anti-Semitic attacks by changing the name to a version that did not sound Jewish. Gunnar Tarker, like Nadine Freund, is a historian at the Institute for Contemporary History and has studied Globke's life. He gave me an example of how this naming law worked in practice. Bernhard Kohn was born in 1899, so only one year younger than Globke. He left his Jewish faith behind and became a Protestant. In the spring of 
1933, he wanted to marry his fiancée, who was a so-called Aryan. But just before the marriage, he wanted to change his name so that their shared name wouldn't be the Jewish-sounding Kohn, but the only slightly different Kohn. So this Bernard Cohen, a 33-year-old worker who'd fought for Germany in the First World War, was born a Jew. But now he was Protestant and married to a non-Jewish woman and hoped that he could change his name. But Globke was the clerk responsible for deciding the case. Globke decided to deny the application on a name change. In January 1933, the German political system lurched into crisis, bringing Adolf Hitler to power. In a matter of weeks, Hitler's National Socialist or Nazi Party seized total control, sidelining the parliaments abolishing rival parties, crushing the free press and imprisoning hundreds of his opponents. Globke could have quit. He could have joined the resistance, but he chose to stay right where he was. Years later, he would claim he'd dodged his oath of loyalty to Hitler by hiding in an alcove during the ceremony. That's one of the more, I'd say, childish aspects of his self-defense. I mean, stepping back in a way that is irrelevant because he put that oath in writing too, and he did that, and he signed his name. It was part of his aim of trying to distance himself from the real Nazis, whoever the real Nazi is, not a higher middle-class civil servant uh, as Globke was in his mind. Two years later, in 1935, the Nazi regime passed the Nuremberg race laws. The Reich citizenship law and the blood protection law reduced Germany's Jews, Roma and black people to, and I quote, enemies of the race-based state. They broke up marriages between those judged to be Aryan and those who weren't, stripped Jews of their political rights and forced hundreds of thousands to flee the country. It's still not clear whether Globke had a hand in writing these laws. But what Globke did do was write the first handbook on how to interpret them. Globke's commentary wasn't the only commentary on the law, but it can be considered the most important one because he wrote it together with Wilhelm Stuckart, who was the state secretary of the Federal Ministry of the Interior, so the second man in the ministry. And Globke basically wrote the whole commentary in Stuttgart, only the introduction. Globke was responsible um, for the content. In the legal world of Nazi Germany, Globke's commentary on the laws was definitive. It didn't just tell judges and other officials how to treat Jews. It clarified and gave voice to the Nazi regime's racial ideology. Here's an excerpt of Globke's commentary on the law for the protection of German blood and German honor, which essentially banned sex between so-called Germans and non-Germans. The biological fitness of a race is impaired when blood that is foreign to the species enters the body of the race. 
one of its foremost concerns must be to keep its blood pure. Klopka also ruled that sexual relations between Germans and Jews were a crime, even if they took place outside Germany. And, as a devout Catholic, he expanded the definition of sex itself. Another line in the handbook says, The term intercourse should not just be understood to mean copulation, i.e. the natural union of the sexual organs, but also copulation-like actions, such as mutual masturbation. Other actions of an erotic nature, such as kisses, embraces, or lewd touching, do not fall under the ban. That discussion on the Globke commentary touches on one of the fundamental differences between National Socialism and Stalinism. For Gunnar, Globke's actions were damning. He left the Jewish population with nowhere to go. In Stalinism, even devoted communists could never feel safe that they themselves were not subjected to a wave of purgatory and put into a gulag. And in National Socialism, thanks to civil servants like Globke, you know whether you were Aryan or not. And this proved to be one of the foundations of racial discrimination and ultimately the Holocaust. So the large majority of Germans could feel safe and thus served as bystanders to persecution and then ultimately mass murder uh, of their Jewish uh, neighbors. But the story of Hans Globke isn't black and white. After the Second World War, a group of Jewish scholars said his work was by far the gentlest of the four commentaries on the Nuremberg race laws, effectively making the case that sometimes Globke tried to soften the blow of the legislation. I think that line of defense is invalid and misses the point. The Globke-Stuckart commentary, their priority was to make a clear-cut separation between Jews and non-Jews. First, to make clear who was subject to the race laws and who was to be discriminated and persecuted, but also second, to make clear who was not subject to the laws. So the 99% of the German population who were not of Jewish descent were able to feel safe. Globke's commentary made him a minor celebrity and netted him 3,000 Reichsmarks, or about 70,000 pounds in today's terms. His boss at the Reich Interior Ministry praised him as the most capable and efficient official in the entire department. But it was only the beginning. In 1938, Globke wrote another naming law that compelled Jews to take the middle name Sarah if they were women, or Israel if they were men. In a moment, we'll hear about how Globke's work developed during the Second World War. But for more remarkable stories every day, including my articles on the Hans Globke story, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In September 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland provoking the Second World War. By his latest act of naked aggression, Hitler has committed a crime not only against Poland, but against the whole human race. This time, Globko was well away from the front line. Officially, Globka's job title was Ministerialrat, the head of a specialist unit in the German civil service. Terrible is the responsibility of the leader of the German Nazis for a catastrophe that will cause untold suffering may set back civilization perhaps for centuries. I'm looking at a photograph of him from 1940, one of the few from this era. He sits there in full Nazi uniform, the eagle and swastika on his peaked cap and on his left sleeve, a baton or swagger stick grasped stiffly in his gloved hands, his face unspectacled and utterly expressionless. In practice, his job was to decide which of the tens of millions of people in the territories occupied by the Nazis deserved the protected status of German citizenship and which were to be regarded as lesser humans. Globke didn't plan or orchestrate the Holocaust, but the fate of half of Europe rested on his rulings. He was the man who determined who was to be considered a member of the chosen German race and who was not. In some of his writings from this period, you can really see how much Globke had adopted the language and ideology of his Nazi masters. After the conquest of France in 1940, a document bearing the number of Globke's department addresses the question of the so-called Rhineland bastards, the children of white German women and black French colonial soldiers. In the future, the infiltration of colored blood into Europe can no longer be tolerated. Wherever these detrimental influences have crept in, they must be eliminated wherever possible. The lasting settlement of coloreds in France is fundamentally not to be tolerated. Quotes like infiltration of colored blood to Europe stem of that personal experience of after the First World War and of a different kind of racism, which is not anti-Semitism, but the other racist opinions uh, he held. And Gunnar, that kind of language it does sound very much like what we would associate today with Nazism and its rhetoric. It could have come out of a Hitler speech almost. Yes, you could say that. 
Well, he may have sounded like Hitler, but how close was he to him? Nadine Freund again. It's quite likely that he saw him several times, but he didn't hang out with him usually. So, he wasn't exactly Hitler's right-hand man, but where did he fit into the Nazi hierarchy? His daily routine was to draft bills, answer questions as well as requests, and to write texts for professional journals. During the war, he concentrated on international citizenship questions. But there's another side to this story. In the aftermath of the war, some of the most distinguished opponents of the Nazi dictatorship came to Globke's defense. The eminent Cardinal Konrad von Preising, the wartime Catholic Bishop of Berlin, said Globke had leaked sensitive information about the regime's activities on an almost daily basis. Here's an excerpt from Preising's witness statement. Globke correctly recognized and condemned the dangers and delusions of Nazism. Beyond his fundamental rejection of the regime, Dr. Globke always endeavored to prevent the abuses, injustices and acts of violence under Nazism as far as he could within the bounds of his job. With the information and early warnings he gave us, he was of especially invaluable service to our work on helping the persecuted Jews and half-Jews. But does this really stack up? Here's Gunnataka again. We know that he was in close contact with members of the Catholic Church during the Third Reich, but that also wasn't a secret at the time. So the Nazi party knew that too, which was exactly why they denied him membership in 1941. That's right. Hans Globke was never actually a member of the Nazi party, despite applying for membership. There is no evidence at all that he was a kind of spy of the Catholic Church within the German government. And I can't see why that should have made a difference. I mean, what did the Catholic Church do to prevent any harm on their Jewish population? The answer is not a great deal. As the tide of the war turned, Globke's house on the Haberlandstrasse, where we began today's story, was flattened by a British bomb in 1943. By this time, he'd already sent his wife and his three children to safety in the Bavarian Alps. This is London. The Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Winston Churchill. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender. In 1945, just a few weeks before the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared the war was over in Europe, Globke was captured in the Bavarian ski resort of Garmisch-Partenkirchen by the invading Americans. He then passed through a series of detention camps, a few months later, he ended up at a British facility for high-ranking Nazi officials, about 90 miles northeast of Frankfurt. It was a wretched time to be alive. In the school, we had what we called school food. Manfred Lahnstein's a former finance minister of West Germany. He was seven when the war ended. He's now in his early 80s. He's telling me 
about the school dinners he was given during the occupation by British troops. The school food consisted of two types of soups. One soup was a biscuit soup, and the other one was, I do not know what is the English word for it, what is erbsen? Peas or beans. Yeah, so peas, pea powder soup. And we divided the week into the pea powder soup days and the biscuit soup days. <laughs> because the biscuit soup was slightly better. Our teacher, a lady, I, I still remember that very vividly. When it was biscuit soup day, she came with a pot and took it home to have some soup for dinner as well. So life was divided into pea soup days or biscuit soup days. From time to time, we got something from the British soldiers. And most of the time, it was kind of the crackers out of which this biscuit soup was made. <laughs> so English crackers is my first memory. For Lahnstein, who would become a member of the Social Democratic Party in post-war Germany and work with those who had known and opposed Globke, 1945 was not a time for navel-gazing. Germany was not a, a philosophical seminar after the war. <laughs> People had very immediate needs to meet. And as it would have been the case in the United Kingdom as well, because human mentality is the same in both cases. The Allies were in the middle of purging Germany of ex-Nazis in a process known as denazification but they weren't sure what to make of Globke, this neat, punctilious little man in his rimless glasses. Globke hadn't technically joined the Nazi party, but not for want of trying. He had applied, but been turned down because he'd previously been a member of the Nazis' old conservative rivals, the Catholic Centre Party. An exchange of letters between the British brigadier C.E.D. Bridge and an American army officer illustrates their supposed dilemma. Bridge wrote, I do not think that Globka's record is black enough to prevent his being employed in an advisory capacity under supervision. His paper on elections shows that he understands our purposes and is by no means ignorant of democratic principles. At all events, the Americans intend apparently to make use of his experience. The US Army officer replied, he is undoubtedly a very able administrator and would, in my opinion, be a very efficient senior political official. Nevertheless, I cannot bring myself to change my earlier opinion of him. We concur in the opinion that he was, and still would be, an active supporter of German expansion, that he only turned against Hitler for reasons of self-interest rather than because of disagreement with Nazi policy, and that he is untrustworthy. Eventually, Globke's bacon was saved by an old comrade from his Catholic network who gathered favourable testimonies from certified anti-Nazis. Despite their misgivings, British and American intelligence were satisfied that Globke was clean enough. His name was cleared. I'm back on the Harbourlandstrasse, the site where we began this episode, and I'm looking at the spot where Hans Globke lived before his house was destroyed by an Allied bomb. 
By this point, I'd hoped to deliver a neat moral balance of Globka's actions, weighing up his good deeds against his crimes. But it doesn't work like that. As a journalist, my primary job is to work out what happened, not to praise or condemn. But those I have spoken to for this episode have spent much of their lives considering precisely these questions. So, was Hans Globke a Nazi? I definitely see him as a Nazi. He helped to establish and to stabilize national socialism by his work, by his everyday work. And for that reason, we should call him a Nazi, yes. That is a very difficult question because who was a Nazi? Either you take a formal definition, then he was a civil servant in the Ministry of the Interior. I have to assume that he was at least so far in agreement with the principles of Nazi regime that he applied to become a member. He wore a uniform with Nazi emblems. He did the Nazi salute. He signed his official letters with Heil Hitler. The list goes on and on. At some point, you really can't get away from the fact that, yes, he was a Nazi. We have a tendency, even now, everything which was bad in the, in the, between 1933 and 1945, now is labeled Nazi, uh, which, by the way, is dangerous because it takes all the others, which then were no Nazis, out of their responsibilities. I cannot give a clear answer. But that's not the end of Globke's story. You can commit huge crimes and nobody will punish you if you always stay with power. What drew Adenauer's attention was Globke's deep knowledge of the structures of administration, which Adenauer wanted to re-resurrect. It's an important reminder of the tension between morality and state interest. I began to ask my friends and acquaintances, hey, nobody was ashamed to tell me that their father was a Nazi. In part two, I'll look at how Globke became one of the founding fathers of modern Germany, a man whose portrait to this day still hangs in Angela Merkel's chancellery. You've been listening to The Spider in the Web, the Hans Globke story, a two-part podcast from Stories of Our Times with me, Oliver Moody, the Times Berlin correspondent. The podcast is brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. My guests today were the historians Nadine Freund and Gunnar Tarka and the former politician Manfred Lahnstein. Special thanks to my researcher at the Times Berlin Bureau, Sabina Schul. This episode was produced by Will Rowe and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. The voiced parts you heard were Freddy Florenz, Chris Nabholz, and Johannes Weiland.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 